I want to come back over to Romans chapter 3. We got into this section uh, this last week, uh, looking again at verse 21, that beautiful transition that Paul makes, but now, uh, that but now moment, the new era, the righteousness of God is being revealed, and uh, this apart from the law. So again, just a quick review, let's just kind of ease into this. Two kinds of righteousness that Paul identifies. And he, he says, um, I, this is over in Philippians, he says, I, I, I don't want a righteousness which is derived from the law. He says, my righteousness is the one that comes through faith in Jesus. So that, it's a complete contrast. Uh, we're, we're either trying to establish a relationship with God on the basis of our performance, or our relationship with God is based on the performance of Jesus. Jesus' life and death and resurrection is credited to us, and we receive that gracious gift by faith. So we looked last week at the fact that grace is freely given. Paul says here that this righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, whether Jew or Gentile, everyone has sinned, he says, every one of us have come short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. And then this this next phrase, through the redemption. So we looked at the fact that grace, God gives us his favor, he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This is freely given because he loves us. But while grace is free, redemption is costly. And so we looked at this fact that grace is bestowed on us and righteousness is given to us freely. We receive it freely. It is not based on anything we have done. It is not merited by us. It is not earned by us. It is simply freely, lovingly, graciously bestowed upon us. But it was costly to God, and we found that in this word, redemption. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption being that word which is used in uh, the book of Exodus. Uh, This is the language of the Old Testament with regard to the people of Israel coming out of slavery in Egypt. So the blood is shed, and they uh, have their liberation from slavery there. And then for the Roman people, that word that's used uh, is the purchase price of coming out of slavery. So in both cases, there's this sense of we were slaves and now we're free, but that was something which was costly. Blood was shed, a price was paid, and so because the blood is shed and the price is paid, we're now free people. So here in Romans chapter 3, Paul begins to unpack what that price is. What does that really look like? So verse 24, let's pick it up in verse 24, read 24 through 26, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he, God, might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this word, this word propitiation is front and center in our study today, propitiation and justification. So in your study guide, I want you to look over at the top of page 9. And we're going to uh, tuck into this whole issue of what is meant by this term propitiation. What Paul says in mentioning redemption is that a price for our salvation has been paid by another. And then he identifies what that price is. Now he's hinted at it, he's hinted at it in the fact that uh, this is a Passover word. This is a word that had to do with blood being shed. So there's a there, 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 there's a, an awareness here of a sacrifice that's been made. And then he, he uses this important word, which the, some English Bibles translate as propitiation. So I've, I've put up there at the top of your study guide the Hebrew term and the Greek term uh, for this idea. So the Hebrew term is kippur. You're familiar with that term, and we talked about this a little bit last week, yom kippur, the Day of Atonement is how we would uh, refer to that. And then this Greek term, hilasterion, hilasterion. And it is translated here uh, in the ESV and in the NAS and King James Version, numerous other, other translations, as propitiation. There are some English translations that use the term expiation, uh, but primarily propitiation. Well, what is meant by kippur? by hilasterion, by this phrase propitiation. One of the words that is used to translate these terms is another English word invented by William Tyndale. So Tyndale was a great Bible translator, uh, one of the first to put the Bible into the English language. He paid the price for that work with his life. Uh, Tyndale was uh, had a, a huge bounty on his head in monetary terms. It was higher than the bounty, uh, if you do a comparison over the centuries, actually higher than the bounty that the U.S. government had on Osama bin Laden. Uh, that bounty was placed on his head by uh, St. Thomas More, and uh, Tyndale was ultimately uh, betrayed, um, captured in Belgium, uh, where for his troubles translating the Bible into the English language, uh, he was strangled and uh, then uh, burned at the stake. And uh, then his remaining bones were crushed into powder and those mixed with concrete and though that turned into paving stones uh, in a carriageway over which horses would ride uh, so they could defecate on those remains. So this was uh, Thomas More and Henry VIII sending a message to the whole world at that point, uh, we don't want the Bible in the English language. We don't want people taking the Bible and reading it and interpreting it for themselves. I mention all this to you right now because in this year of biblical literacy, I want you to remember the price that's been paid by many so that you can even have a Bible to study and read in your, own, in your own language. Well, one of the things that Tyndale did in the course of his work was uh, uh, invent new words in an effort to communicate what the, the truth 
is that's coming through in these texts. Uh, new words like that are called neologisms. And, and uh, so new words entirely. Shakespeare contributed more words to the English language than the other single individual. And of course, um, a volume like the Oxford English Dictionary, the OED, every year lists new words, which are part of our everyday vocabulary. There are a lot of words, for instance, associated with technology, uh, which we use every day now, but didn't even exist 20 years ago. And so somebody had to create those words. Well, right behind Shakespeare is Tyndale. And so even the name Jehovah is a, is a neologism that Tyndale fashioned. And he does something here, too. Tyndale came up with this word that we pronounce atonement. So when we say Yom Kippur, uh, we go, oh yeah, Day of Atonement. And that's our, our common usage of the term. But um, if we stop and think about that for, for just a moment, um, and I mentioned this in the uh, Q&A session of the morning uh, this last week and then in the main session, let's, but just by way of review, when Tyndale creates this, this word, atonement, he, at, the, at the center of the word is this word, which we, don't, we, we pronounce one. Well, that's how we say that word. We don't say own. We say one. And then he adds this prefix and then this suffix. Now, when we say this in, modern, in, in the modern era, we say atonement because we're tending to follow the, the rule that where we've got an E in relationship to a vowel, it, it makes the vowel long. But in fact, in fact, when Tyndale's first using this, this word, that's not how it was pronounced. He's going to stick with the original pronunciation of this word, one, which is a French derivative. That's why it has that W sound to it, just like the French word for yes, we, which starts with an O. So we've got at one meant, at one meant. That's how it was originally pronounced. And keeping that pronunciation, by the way, or at least reminding ourselves of that pronunciation, I'm not suggesting we should revert to it, but it's something we should be aware of because it helps us understand what this English word, propitiation, is trying to communicate to us, what Kippur and Hilasterion are all about. It is about two parties which have been estranged being brought back together through an act of sacrifice that reconciles them. One party presents a sacrificial gift which puts these formerly estranged parties into a position of reconciliation. Now, if you'll notice here on your study guide under letter C, under propitiation, you'll see another way this word kippur is, is translated into English. It's also translated as mercy seat. Again, Kippur, same word. Mercy seat. You go, wait a minute, mercy seat, that's a, that's a, that's a bit of furniture. I, I remember what that is. Okay, you're right. That's, a, that's a, some sacred furniture. That's in Exodus 25, 17 to 22. Now, if you want to turn back there, I'll read that. This is about the furnishings in the tabernacle of Moses. So um, if we, we look at Exodus uh, 25, um, let me get over here, verses um, 17 through 22. 
And we'll, we'll need to think a little bit about this uh, section and what it's communicating. We've got the language of, of mercy seat. So here we go. You will make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, and you shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. And he goes on to say, you shall, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you will put the testimony that I will give to you. And then listen to these remarkable words, Exodus 25, 22. This is the real um, point of the whole tabernacle and what's going on in, in this area of the tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, between the cherubim, which are upon the Ark of the Testimony. There I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So here in Exodus 25, 22, um, God says to Moses, there I will meet with you at the mercy seat. I meet with you at the mercy seat between the cherubim, between the cherubim, there I will meet with you, there I will speak with you. So this is where I'm going to be in communion with you. This is where we're going to have fellowship together. So oh, this is an incredible scene. Now you go, okay, so, so what are we talking about here? Well, you've got, the, you've got this outline of the tabernacle of Moses. You've got the outer court in which there, there was the altar for sacrifice and the laver from which the priests drew water and washed them. Uh, their hands after performing these priestly duties. Then they went into what was called the holy place, and that's undercover. The other one was out open to the sky, but had a, there was a fence around the whole thing. And uh, so as soon as you walked in, you saw this big altar and then the uh, laver. And then you went inside this tent structure, and there's the holy place. Now inside that section, there's the uh, table of showbread. had the bread laid out on it, the bread of the presence of God, there was the menorah, the golden uh, lampstand, and there was the altar of incense. And that stood right in front of the veil, which uh, was the way into where this is taking place. And that area, of course, is called the Holy of Holies. So in that place was no natural light. The only light in the whole place is from that candle stick outside in the flame, perhaps, that somebody's burning to... Uh, 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 light the incense. And in that place, in that place was the Ark of the Covenant. That was a rectangular box. And the lid is what's being referred to here. The lid of the box is the seat, the mercy seat, the kippur. And the reason it's called that is because once a year, the high priest would come from that outer area with the blood from the sacrifice on the great day of atonement, the great day of atonement, Yom Kippur, this is described in Leviticus 16, and he comes in with that blood. And this blood is to make atonement for the sins of Israel during all this past year. And he comes in and he places the blood of that sacrifice on top of the mercy seat between the cherubim, right? And Israel's sins are taken away. There I will meet with you. There I will speak with you. God meets with us speaks with us, is in communion with us in the place where the blood is placed 
to say, we who have been estranged are now reconciled to you. Now, in Hebrews, uh, this is in your study guide. We won't take time to look at it uh, uh, this morning. But Hebrews 9, 5 and 22 say that Jesus' blood is the ultimate fulfillment of that Old Testament ritual. And that what Jesus did is he took his blood, not into some earthly temple, but into heaven itself. Moses' tabernacle, Solomon's temple, being copies, it says in the book of Hebrews, of the heavenly one. So one of the things to to think about here and to realize is that when you look at that diagram of Moses' tabernacle, or you saw floor plan of Solomon's temple, what those are are copies, the writer of Hebrews tells us, of the throne room of God. That's heaven itself. So in a certain sense, it's heaven on earth. This is where God meets with us. So what Christ does is he takes his blood and he presents it before the Father in heaven. I'm, he's the lamb that is slain. It is his blood that is presented. And there we are united again. We are reconciled to the God from whom we've been estranged. And this is not a price which we've paid. It's not a sacrifice that we've made. God, who commanded the sacrifice, has provided the sacrifice. And what this has done is satisfied the demands of justice. An offense has taken place, and that for reconciliation to take place between a holy God and sinful people, and the just penalty of the offense being death, some satisfaction of that penalty has to be made. Now, John Owen was, of course, one of the great Puritan writers in England, and uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his uh, sermon on this passage, in his work on Romans, uh, quotes Owens, and, uh, and he talks about there being four things essential to a propitiation. So here they are. An offense that has to be taken away, because the offense has what driven the two parties apart. A person offended who must be pacified. So there's the offended person. Then thirdly, the offending person, the guilty party. And then fourthly, a sacrifice or some other means of making atonement, at one for the offense. In other words, the demands of justice, given the extent of the offense, must be met. So for the two parties to be reconciled and, and for justice to be maintained, some aspect of justice has to be satisfied for these two parties, which, through the actions of the one offending, have been, have been ripped apart, now they can be reconciled. All right. So what, what Paul is saying is that Christ at the cross, by shedding his blood, represents us. He is taking his, our sin to himself and shedding his blood. And he is taking that blood now, that sacrifice, and going to the Father, who is the offended party in this relationship by the offense of our high treason against him. And he is making the sacrifice, and as our representative, 
because he is not only fully God, he is fully human. He is reconciling God and humanity together. He is bringing us together, and he does this through the blood of the cross. So this redemption is costly. It has cost God everything. The demands of his justice have been mercifully met by his own love for us. So God pays the price of his own justice. And this because he wants to be in communion with us. There I will meet with you. There I will speak with you. This is why to us it is incomprehensibly beautifully, beautiful and wonderful, and we are left in really awestruck wonder because, because it's a price we should have been required to pay. But instead of being required to pay it, another pays it on our behalf, our representative, our, our David, who lays down his life. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and his blood is presented in heaven before God and pleads above all that is necessary for us to be in communion with God. So sinful people like you and me and a holy God who is completely other than anything like you or me really in this regard. He's the holy and perfectly just God. We are now in communion with each other. How can a holy God be in communion with unholy people? How can the one who is perfectly just and holy in all of his ways call us righteous? How can he he do that? He does that because of this, because of propitiation. This blood has reconciled us together. Now, I mentioned that word expiation just a little bit ago. Yes, expiation. Expiation means that something has been removed. Propitiation, something has been satisfied. Literally, it would mean wrath has been turned away. So something has been removed, expiated, and something has been satisfied, the demands of justice. So wrath is averted. Now, translating this as expiation deals with the fact, deals with the fact that something has been removed. And uh, that's true, it has been removed. But it doesn't do justice to the fact that the demands of justice have been satisfied. So sometimes... Sometimes there are certain English versions that use the term expiation because they don't want to go down the road that says that God's uh, a God who is angry with sin or that God justly punishes sin. But in fact, in the Bible, God does punish sin. And he is relentlessly opposed to evil in all of its forms and ways. God is a God of justice. So sometimes what people want to say is, well, you, can't, you don't want to talk about this God of justice. We only want to talk about the God who is love. But what God's love is, is a holy love. And God's justice is a loving justice. God's demands of justice are fully kept and met. But his love means that he will take it upon himself to do it. Rather than requiring it of us. So God meets those demands, and this is what brings us back together with God. Now, this is the point where we go back here to Romans chapter 3 now, where Paul says, 
This propitiation is in his blood through faith. In other words, what Jesus did with his blood is something which we receive by faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God was patient. Look what it says here in, in verse 25. He passed over the sins previously committed. So there's that allusion to Passover again, this blood being shed. And what Paul says here is that God, rather than requiring the full accounting for sins that were taking place before the time of Jesus, God God passed over that. Now, he delayed his judgment falling. He delayed it. He just passed over it. He let it go. Now, of course, because God lets it go, because God delays the imposition of his judgment, the charge against him by, by uh, the, the arch enemy of our souls, the devil himself, could be, you, God, are not just. You said you would put them to death, but you're not. You're not holding them accountable. Look, look you're, you're, you're letting them just go on. You're, you're delaying your, your justice. Well, God does delay it, but not indefinitely, not permanently. The cross of Christ, where he sheds his blood, is not simply a place of mercy, but of justice. Now, as we encounter it, it's a place of mercy, because the blood has been shed, our sins have been taken away, our price that we owed has been paid, and you and I are liberated. But it is also a place where the demands of God's justice, which have been delayed, are now met. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the way back to the garden with Adam. Then Moses and the people of Israel, David. Think about all of those men and women of the Old Testament era who are saved by faith just as we are, but they're looking ahead. They're saved by a faith that looks ahead. You and I are saved by a faith that looks back to what Christ has done. But they were looking forward to what God would do in the coming of the Messiah. And now, now, the penalty that they owed, because Christ has come, has been paid. They too now have expiation of all guilt because the propitiation of the blood of the Messiah has been shed. So the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, I do have to go over here for this, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, that the uh, law, everything that's going on here in the Old Testament, this is Hebrews 10 verse 1, was a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form of things. And it could never, by the same sacrifices year after year, which they continually offered, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year because it is impossible, he says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So these Old Testament sacrifices were, rather than reminding them of their cleansing, were in fact reminding them of their guilt. And, and telling them that, that this blood, the, the bulls, the goats, the lambs, those weren't actually taking away sins. They were just delaying judgment. They were delaying judgment. God was passing over things. The judgment that we deserve, that they deserve, that we deserve, 
fell on Christ. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that by his stripes we are healed. That's 1 Peter 2.24. Peter quotes Isaiah 53, and he says what's happening in the cross is that Christ has become the lamb who silently is slain and sheds his blood, and he bears the guilt, he bears the sin, and you and I receive healing. So while these Old Testament sacrifices could not and did not take away sins, they simply delayed judgment, when Christ comes, he receives the full judgment, the full wrath of God against sin for all those who put their trust in him. It's completely taken care of. And that means you and I can dwell together. And so with God, we can be in communion with God and with each other. But then, then later, here in Hebrews 10, Um, Let's pick it up here in verse 10. By this will, God's will revealed in Christ, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So here's Jesus, the offering of his body is far superior. His offering is immeasurably superior to any of these Old Testament sacrifices, which were only pointing forward to the sacrifice he would make. And he says, for every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, by way of contrast, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that moment onward until his enemies are made the footstool of his feet. For by one offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So the Old Testament rituals were repeated all the time. There wasn't a reminder of forgiveness. There was a reminder of guilt. Everything's just being delayed. And so these sacrifices kept going on and on and on, just delaying, postponing, delaying and postponing. But when Christ comes, Christ comes, and he makes one sacrifice. Not repeated sacrifices. Jesus doesn't have to be crucified afresh every single time we sin. That one sacrifice for all time is sufficient for every sin that everyone who's ever put their trust in him has ever committed. Ever. Once. Once and for all. He says, one sacrifice for all time. This means that when he gave up his life on the cross, all of our sins were paid for. Every single one of them. We are liberated from the slavery we were in to shame and guilt and so on. Now, this means, just like the people of Israel, we move out of slavery. We have this exodus in Jesus. We move out of our spiritual chains in Egypt, and we're moving towards our inheritance. So, Passover is central to God's patience, and it's the template for justification. When we are feasting together at the Lord's table, we, we are there taking the bread and taking the wine, which Jesus has reinterpreted now in the new covenant as his body and his blood, and it is reminding us not of our sins. That was Old Testament sacrifice, remind you of your sins. We are being reminded of our liberation, that we have been set free by what he has done. And this means our exile and movement towards uh, grace has been effected by God's power, uh, they're under letter C, under just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Uh, that, that, that should read, effected by the, 
by God's power, not affected by the power of God. So it's, it's affected by God's power. What God has done has brought into effect his will for our lives, sanctifying us, cleansing us, making us Christ's own people. So Jesus is this Passover lamb, and as we put our trust in his blood, as a member of the redeemed family gathered at the table, we are reminded that nothing can separate us from his love. Now I want to show you one other place where this word um, kippur, mercy seat, propitiation occurs, and it's in Genesis 32. So if you come back with me to Genesis chapter 32, in Genesis 32, we want to Take a look at, again, uh, uh, how this word is used to, a very practical way of bringing people, two offended parties, uh, back together, reconciling them. This is a beautiful picture of this word. Now, this is um, Jacob being reconciled to his brother Esau. Now, let's remember, uh, many of you have just read through Genesis. Let's think about the Jacob-Esau story. Uh, Jacob receives uh, the blessing of the firstborn uh, from his father Isaac, but it is through an act of deception. And Esau is angry with him and wants to put him to death. And Jacob flees out of the country to his uncle Laban's home where he marries and begins to have children. But now after many, many years away, he he wants to come home. But he knows that when he gets home, he's going to have to deal with Esau And Esau was out for his blood. He wanted to kill him because he had stolen, in his view, his birthright, and he wanted him dead. So is Esau still bitter? Does Esau have armed men? Does Esau want to put him to death? What's going to happen to me when I go back home? I know I've greatly offended my brother. So here comes Jacob. He's on the way back home, and he knows he's going to meet Esau. And so he prays about it. And in Genesis 32, Genesis 32 um, pick it up at verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who did say to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. You're, you're, you've told me to go back. Well, here I am. I'm unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown your servant. For with my staff only I crossed the Jordan, and now I've become two companies, this great, great family of people. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, the mothers and the children. For you said, I will prosper you, and I'll make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So, Lord, you've given me this promise. It was the promise you gave to my grandfather Abraham and repeated to my father Isaac that you would make us like the stars, like the sand. And you've told me to come home. I'm coming home, but I admit I'm afraid. I'm afraid Esau is going to kill us all, and, and, but you've made this promise, so what are we going to do? Lord, help me. So he spends the night there, and he comes up with a plan. What can I do? He spent the night there. This is verse 13. So he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. He lists what this present is, and it consists of livestock and so on. And he puts all of this into the hands of his servants. It's a substantial amount of livestock, by the way. This is, this is like carving up. You've got to remember that for these folks, the livestock was like their stock portfolio. This is, this, is, this is taking a tremendous amount of his wealth and putting it in the hands of one of his servants and, and sending it on ahead. So he says, 
This is verse 16. Pass on before me and put a space between the droves. So there's various parts of this investment portfolio that are being handed over to the servant. And he says, you know, keep a little space between them. Just keep, but move towards home. And, 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 and he says, command the one in the front saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going? And who do these animals in front of you belong? And you will say, these belong to your servant, Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau. He is coming behind us. So he commanded the second and the third and all those who followed, saying, this is the way you will speak to Esau when you find him. And you will say, behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, now watch this. This is verse 20, Genesis 32, verse 20. I will appease him with the present that goes before me. And then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept. Now, the word for appease in verse 20 is this word propitiate. Esau is the offended party. Jacob is looking to be reconciled with him. He wants to propitiate his brother. He wants to at-one-ment. He wants at-one-ment to occur between them, these two estranged brothers. He wants to be reunited with his brother. But this this great offense is between them. What's to be done? Esau, it could be argued, was justly angry with his brother. What's to be done? So Jacob sends these gifts ahead. And he says, these gifts, these sacrifices that I'm making, are the propitiation. They are the appeasement. And he says, maybe, maybe, after he receives the propitiation... I will see his face, and he will accept me. That's the word Paul uses when he talks about our relationship with God in his holiness and us in our brokenness and fallenness. And what he says is this. There is something that goes ahead of us to God that turns away wrath, that deals with the offense which has taken place when we sinned against God. And the difference is this. We don't provide the sacrifice. We're not emptying out our portfolio and saying, here, God, here, please accept us. No, no, no. What God does is he takes it upon himself. God was in Christ, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. And so Christ comes, God in the flesh, and he sheds his blood, and he goes before us to the Father. And on the basis of this, the words of of Jacob are very beautiful. Because of the propitiation, he says, I will see his face, and he will accept me. You know what's happened because of Christ's blood being shed for us? We say our sins are forgiven. That's right. That's right. But the sins being forgiven, and friend, I hope you hear this, the sins being forgiven are a means to an end. They are not the end themselves. 
The sin has to be taken away. But that's not the end. That's a means to the end. The end is this, that you and I are brought into communion with God, where the blood is put, the mercy seat. There I will meet with you. There I will speak with you. The whole purpose of redemption was not just to take away sin, but to bring us face-to-face with God. 